Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey there, Against the Rules listeners. Michael Lewis here. I know, you've been very patient waiting for season three. And it's coming, this spring. But over the next few weeks, I wanted to share something special with you. It's a project that I've really grown to love that I didn't think I would at first. It starts with a bunch of boxes I kept in storage for three decades. I brought them into the studio here in Berkeley, California, not sure what I'd find inside. And I asked my editor, Julia Barton, to listen in as I opened them up. This is promising at the top here. You're looking at a banker's box that says Liar's Poker scribbled in, in messy black ink on the top. And sure enough, you open it, and here is, I have here a tattered manila folder with working titles, lists of all the titles I considered. Oh, let's hear it. Fast and Loose in the Golden Years, Bond Fever, <laughs> Spellbound, no, Spellbond. I guess I thought that was a, a pun. What? Uh, burnout, The Empire Builders, Disposable assets, other people's money. <laughs> it gets better. Actually, it's better. Bonds of passion. <laughs> In the end, I just called it liar's poker. I was 27 years old when I wrote the book and 29 when it came out. It's all about my first real job out of college. Three years working at an investment bank called Solomon Brothers. I don't think I had any idea at the time what was going to happen after it was published. But when it landed... It landed like a giant stink bomb in the middle of Wall Street. At 27, Michael Lewis was making $225,000 a year as a bond salesman at Solomon Brothers during the go-go 1980s. His friends thought he was crazy when he quit in 1987 to write a book. They were wrong. The book Liar's Poker hit the New York Times bestseller list, and Michael Lewis never went back to work on Wall Street. Now he that first book I wrote, Liar's Poker, set me up, and it's meant that I've never had to do anything with the rest of my life but write. But the funny thing about the book 
is that I never really read it. I mean, obviously, I wrote it, but I never went back and looked at it again. And then about a year ago, out of nowhere, the audio rights reverted back to me, and I realized that there had never actually been a full-length audiobook of Liar's Poker. Back then, the publisher shortened the audio version so it would fit onto a few cassette tapes. So I thought, let's try it. You can now hear the whole of Liar's Poker for the first time, read by me. And we've released it along with this companion podcast. And the point of the podcast is that while I was reading the book, all these questions came up. Questions like, what's happened to the people I wrote about? It was a good time for you to write that book and me to be forced to leave. Did you feel like you were forced to leave? By the book? Absolutely. What's happened to Wall Street? The notion that men will say today they will not be in a room alone with a woman has been an enormous setback for the advancement of women on Wall Street. How do other writers feel about revisiting their early work? It's like didactic. It's like do-goodery. It's trying to teach a lesson. How did this even end up on the air? And what's happened to me? So welcome to Other People's Money, a Liar's Poker Companion podcast. Episode one, Bonds of Passion. Now, obviously, we can't start without me giving you some sense of the book. We're going to drop a whole chapter for you at the end of this episode. But here's a short clip from the very beginning of Liar's Poker. I was a bond salesman on Wall Street and in London. South Gen, New York, Dollar Paris in 22. Okay, one moment. Cable Dresner, Frankfurt. Somebody asked me, what in fact do you do? And I realized that I spent most of my time on the phone, and in order to make people think I was professional, I had to figure out what it was I did. Working beside the traders at Solomon Brothers put me, I believe, at the epicenter of one of those events that helped to define an age. Traders are masters of the quick killing, and a lot of the killings in the past 10 years or so have been quick. And Solomon Brothers was indisputably the king of traders. What I've tried to do here, without, as it were, leaving my seat on the Solomon trading floor, is to describe and explain the events and the attitudes that characterize the era. The story occasionally tails away from me, but it's nonetheless my story throughout. The money I didn't make and the lies I didn't tell, I still understood in a personal way because of my position. That was somewhere near the center of a modern gold rush, Never before have so many unskilled 24-year-olds made so much money in so little time as we did this decade in New York and London. There's never before been such a fantastic exception to the rule of the marketplace that one takes out no more than one puts in. Now, I don't object to money. I generally would rather have more than less. But I'm not holding my breath waiting for another windfall. What happened was a rare and amazing glitch in the fairly predictable history of getting and spending couple of things about that passage. First, it's not exactly me, but me after I've read Henry Adams, The Education of Henry Adams. That's what I was reading to get myself all warmed up at the beginning of the book. I hear his voice there, just like I hear George Orwell's voice a few chapters later and Charles Dickens' voice somewhere in there and Tom Wolfe's voice every now and then. I was try- still trying to figure out who I was there. But the other thing is how wrong it is. I mean, I really did think at the time— that I was writing a story that was a message in a bottle for a hundred years from now when they wanted to look back and ask, like, what had happened in the 1980s? How did Wall Street ever get that crazy? Because I assumed it was all going to end. I assumed that 
I represented a kind of a market top. It turned out that wasn't true. It turned out that I was at the beginning of something that would go on and on and on and is in some ways still going on. Wall Street just keeps getting bigger and bigger in relation to the rest of the American economy. Or anyway, that's how it seems to me. But what do I know? I'm just a writer now. So to check my hunch, I called up someone whose job is to know this sort of thing. Gary Gensler, the current head of the Securities and Exchange Commission. And here's how he put it. In the 1980s, finance, including banking and insurance and Wall Street and so forth, but finance was about 5.5% of our overall economy. The 1950s, actually, 3.5%. Uh-huh. Now we're at 8%. If you had asked me back in 1989 what Wall Street would look like in 2021, I would have said that the society would have gotten its arms around Wall Street and it would have kind of stuck it back in its box. But it hasn't. If you had asked me back in 1989 what would happen to Liar's Poker, I would say, well, it's nice it had this little run, but this world of Wall Street changes so fast, there's no way it will remain current in any way. So flash forward to 2021, and I have a daughter who's a junior in college who has told me now three times about friends who've returned from Wall Street internships and been made by their bosses to read Liar's Poker because they view it as a description of how Wall Street really works, which is, I think, nuts. I mean, I think it's actually very different now from how it was then. But this also raises the question of, like, what is it that's going on? What is it that was in my experience that still feels relevant to the experience of the people who are there now? I mean, why on earth are people still reading my book? To get at this, I asked Pushkin's Jacob Goldstein to come to have a chat with me. Jacob was a longtime host of NPR's Planet Money, and he's also the author of a book called Money, The True Story of a Made-Up Thing. And I figured if anyone could help me work out why Liar's Poker is still around after 30 years, it was going to be him. So stick around. As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know the fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned 
first place in the customer experience category at the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome back. I'm here with Jacob Goldstein, who's now an executive producer at Pushkin. And he's written and reported for years on the worlds of finance and money. The big question I'm here, we're here to talk about is why, right? Why is Liar's Poker still so relevant many decades after it was written? Yeah. And I've got two ideas I want to talk about with you for why, right? So one is you captured something about life on Wall Street, just about like what it's like to work there. And, and then two is... You basically wrote the origin story of modern finance and its role in American life, the sort of broader invention of modern finance moment. Do you want to just start out talking with that? Let's just start out wonky and then get like less wonky as we go. Yeah, yeah. So it is true that a lot of the things that we've come to just assume about Wall Street started back in kind of the late 70s, 80s. And when I think in no particular order of what those things are, the first thing that pops to mind is the nature of the financial enterprise slash corporation. That the world I walked into was a world filled with partnerships. Goldman Sachs was a partnership. Morgan Stanley was a partnership. Solomon Brothers had very controversially just stopped being a partnership and become a corporation, a public corporation, and was growing with incredible speed, going from a a place with just a few hundred people to a place with 8,000 people over like six or seven years. And risk that had been managed in a partnership by people who knew that if they got it wrong, 
it wasn't just they didn't get a big bonus at the end of the year that might lose their houses, that they had, they had liability for the risks they were taking. We're all of a sudden going to be managed by a public corporation whose uh, shareholders were basically on the hook. And the shareholders, of course, weren't in the room when the risks weren't being taken. So it's, it was all of a sudden other people's money in a whole new way. That was like the first thing that happened. And that's a big one. It's a big right? one, right? Like yes. That one is wonky. And just on a really kind of basic structural level, that is a profound change, right? Because in the older partnership model, the partners, the senior people at the firm, have their money in the firm, right? So if the firm gets bigger, they get rich. But if the firm goes under, if they make stupid bets, they lose their money. They don't get to stay rich. Yeah. So it becomes their attitude, to, the attitude of that person towards risk is different from the attitude of the trader who, if the corporation goes kaboom and blows up, can walk across the street and work for somebody else and keep all his money. Right. The old world is symmetric, right? Your firm does well, you do well. Your firm does poorly, you do poorly. This new world, the world you're walking into just as it's being born, is asymmetric. The firm does well, you get rich. The firm blows up, you walk away, get another job, get rich at your next Exactly job. right. And it's a world in which not only is, is it asymmetric, but it's much more fluid. In this new world, if you don't get paid at the end of the year, you walk across the street and work for somebody else. You aren't working so much anymore for a company. You're working for the whole system. And that uh -huh. what you're trying to maximize the value of is your value to the system rather than to any particular company. Okay, so that's one big, and I do think underappreciated shift that just happened to happen right when you got there, the shift from partnerships to publicly traded corporations. What else? I feel like you were rattling off a list. What's next on the list? Well, number two would be the way money got made. Broadly speaking, even at a place like Solomon Brothers, which was famously a bond trading shop when it was a partnership, these businesses were service businesses. There were fat fees associated with everything they did. When stocks changed hands, there were big commissions that were fixed. The spreads in the bond market were big enough that just moving bonds around on behalf of customers from one pension fund to the other, you could take out quite a bit. Advising big mergers and acquisitions transactions or raising a whole bunch of money for IBM. People made a very comfortable living providing a service. In a very short order, the firm's turned into trading shops where the way they made money was by taking big risks. And their fees were eroded by competition and changes in rules. I mean, we've got to the point now where there's, there are no stock market commissions, basically, right? And that is a, a, one example of something that's happened across the financial sector where you don't get paid as much for providing services. And so the firms themselves, at the same time they're becoming other people's money, they become more, more risk-taking enterprises. So I think that's a great big change. And the book Liar's Poker is largely about this change, right? About how they become risk-taking enterprises. And in fact, you write at great length about this very specific thing, which is the trading of what are called private mortgage-backed securities. And these securities, sort of amazingly, they wind up decades later at the heart of the 2008 financial crisis. And I go back and I read this book and I think, like, how did he know? You know, how did he know in the 80s to write all these pages about private mortgage-backed securities? But but there it is. It's like this, this weird key to the financial crisis. Well, it's 
it's one key. You need a couple of keys to get to the yeah, financial fair. crisis, right? Fair. And the other key is it's the introduction of a new kind of complexity into finance. All of a sudden, there is some benefit to having higher math skills on a trading floor, not just being able to add and subtract really fast. And all <laughs> of a sudden, there are instruments that are being invented, and I invented some of them. I helped invent some of them that are as good as opaque to the wider world because the wider world doesn't understand how they work and what they do. And that complexity got to the point where, I mean, I found myself in a room with John Goodfriend, the CEO of the firm, trying to explain to him what it was I'd just done with an option trade, and he clearly didn't understand it. The rapid innovation has this other effect. It's an effect that you see in Silicon Valley, too. It's to shift power from older people down to younger people because the younger Uh people are are the engines of innovation. The younger people are inventing this stuff, and the older people don't understand it. As you describe the sort of older generation of traders— it was basically a blue-collar job, right? I mean, not only were they not, you know, physicists, yep. they weren't even college graduates, right? They, these people who were essentially running the trading desk came up through the mailroom. That's right. They were essentially blue-collar jobs that were being transformed before your eyes into very complicated white-collar jobs. And there was a friction, and the, the book describes this friction between this old world and, and this new world. And I can remember there was a guy, and it was a trader, an old trader named Donnie Green, People would refer to Donnie Green types, and Donnie Green type was a guy who hadn't graduated from high school, who traded bonds by his gut, which is very ample, but also, you know, well-educated in the marketplace, who was loud and profane. And there was this moment where Donnie Green himself had this interaction with a new young guy who had just come out of, like, MIT or Harvard and who was near him. And the young guy was, had his bags, and he was on his way off the trading floor, and Donnie Green stood up and shouted, hey, kid, where are you going? And the guy kind of stopped in his tracks and looked over, and big old Harry Donnie Green was, like, staring at him, and he was scared, and everybody could hear the interaction. And the guy says, I'm, i got to fly to Chicago. I'm, I'm on my way out. And Donnie Green says, come here. And the guy walks over to him, and Donnie Green pulls out, like, 20 bucks from his wallet. He says, when you get to the airport, you know those machines where you can buy the crash insurance? Not if you remember. You used to be able to buy airplane <laughs> crash insurance at the airports. Yeah. And he says, when you get to the airport, take this money and buy some crash insurance and put it in my name. And and the guy goes like, he's like sweating. He goes, why? And Donnie Green says, I feel lucky. (laughs) And I just thought that, I remember hearing this story and thinking, that's sort of like the moment. These old guys who kind of thought the world was one way or watch these new guys roll in and they're, they're smart Alex and they know things that Donnie Green doesn't know and pretty soon they're going to take Donnie Green's job and Donnie Green, the Donnie Greens of the world just hated it. That moment is like the last stand of Donnie Green. The last stand of Donnie Green. And so that's right. And the new guard, you know, had all gotten 800 on their SATs, had been told they were the brightest kid in the class for for their whole lives, had gotten into Harvard or MIT, had succeeded there, and thought that when they got to the Solomon, this is my natural reward for being the smartest person. So you have an arrogance, and it's a quieter arrogance. Where do you fit? Where do do you, you know, young Michael Lewis arriving at Solomon Brothers fit in that uh, map you just laid out? On the surface, I'm very much part of the problem, right? I went. I go to Princeton. 
I, and they have a master's in economics from the London School of Economics. I don't have a lot of body hair. I, <laughs> I, I appear to be part of this meritocratic machine that's spitting out this new kind of person who's going to overwhelm Wall Street. The truth was that I was always a little bit of a renegade inside my own life, that I didn't—I was an art history major at Princeton. I studied economics because I thought I needed to learn this language so I could wouldn't be buffaloed by people for the rest of my life, by people who understood economics. I thought of myself when I arrived there as a writer who was just, you know, trying to make some money so I could house myself, but also have experiences that I might write about one day. So I was—what was I? I was both insider and outsider. Yeah. And, and that is both a, it's kind of a character trait, I think, probably of me, that I do tend to kind of join and not join at the same time. Every every group I've ever It's a I've classic writer move, right? Yeah, that's right. It's kind of like who I am. I've always kind of like, I've never been completely in anything, but I'm uncomfortable being completely out. I kind of like to be in and out at the same time. Their culture was based on food. And as strange as that sounds... It was stranger still to those who watched mortgage traders eat. You don't diet on Christmas Day, and you didn't diet in the mortgage department, said one. Every day was a holiday. We made money no matter what we looked like. They began with a round of onion cheeseburgers fetched by a trainee from the Trinity Deli at 8 a.m. I mean, you didn't really want to eat them, recalls trader Gary Kilberg, who joined the trading desk in 1985. You were hungover, you were sipping coffee, but you'd get wind of that smell. Everyone else was eating them. So you grab one of those suckers. So you have this kind of insider-outsider perspective. And this perspective is what lets you tell the story of this profound drama that's happening inside your firm when you're there. And the key character really in this drama is a guy named Louis Ranieri, who's actually going to be a big deal in the whole history of modern Wall Street. Can you just talk about him a little bit? So Louis Ranieri, who is at the, kind of the heart and soul of Solomon Brothers when I joined, and three years later will be run out of the firm, had joined as a mailroom clerk. I think he eventually got a college degree, but he was a high, at that point, he was just a high school graduate, and worked his way up into a position on the trading floor where he sees this opportunity. And the opportunity is to create a new market. And the new market is going to sort of finance home buying in America in a completely different way than it's been financed up till then. I mean, up to that point, the savings and loan or the bank lent the home buyer money to buy the house and then just sat on the loans. And Louis saw that if you could bundle up a lot of these loans together into a big pool and sell sort of like the rights to the pool off, you essentially could create an investment that anybody could buy and you could let anybody, not just banks and savings and loans, into the business of lending money to the American homeowner. And so he essentially invents the market for mortgage-backed securities. And the end result, you know, 20 years later, as Louis Ranieri, I guess, was among the first to admit, is that the market got so complicated that it didn't track the risk anymore properly. And only through, like, great diligence could you figure out how screwed up the market was and just to state it clearly, right, the, these very mortgage-backed securities that your colleague Louis Ranieri invented were at the center of the 2008 financial crisis. Like it, That's correct. It starts in Liar's Poker, and it blows up in 2008. In this story, Louis' role is the role of Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. That he, he creates the monster, 
He didn't mean for the monster to do what it did. Louis didn't make the very bad loans that that blew up, but the world took his invention and used it to create a catastrophe. That's true. Tell you a funny thing. When I, I really thought when I wrote Liar's Poker, I'm done with Wall Street. I thought, when am I ever going to get the inside view again? No one's ever going to let me <laughs> let me back in, right? I mean, I'm never going to have such good material, so why go back ever again to this subject? And when the world did blow up in 2007 and 2008, it surprised me but delighted me that Liar's Poker ended up being my ticket back into the world. One, it was pretty clear that the catastrophe in 2008 had its origins in stuff I'd written about in Liar's Poker so that there was a natural reason for me to become back, that there was this kind of a bookend to write. Which became the big short. And when I started calling around and trying to talk to the traders who had made the catastrophic bets inside Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch and Citigroup, the people who had not seen that they'd built this doomsday machine, instead of them saying, no, I'll never talk to you, they'd all go have a beer with me. And they'd all say the same thing over the beer. Well, the first thing they say, this wasn't my fault. <laughs> nobody nobody <laughs> the saw it coming. It was the guy yeah, It was the, the other guy. Yeah. But the other thing they all said was, the, the reason I'm having this off-the-record beer with you to explain to you what happened is you're the reason I'm in the business. I read Liar's Poker, and it made me want to be a bond trader. And I thought, like the fourth time I heard that, I thought, Jesus Christ, I created this crisis. That I created, <laughs> that, that the book, books have the funniest effects on the world. When they, You think you've written one thing, but you've in fact, it's turned out you've written something entirely different. The reader, you write your book, but the reader reads his or her book. And they'd read this thing as college students, and there was this dog whistle coming out of the book. And the dog whistle was, huh, this is a story of a young man, Michael Lewis, who persuades the reader that he really doesn't know much about anything and certainly nothing about money. And yet, if he goes to Wall Street, they start giving them hundreds of thousands of dollars just to be there. And it's exciting and it's fun. And so all these guys, and it was always guys, they read it and they said, ah, it's made for me. I don't know anything either. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. You've said you're writing it as like a cautionary tale, but like... You make it sound so fun. Like, I don't want to say I don't believe you. It's not that I don't believe you, but like, you're clearly very skilled as a writer. I feel like you should you should know how fun it's going to sound. I don't know. I'm not quite saying it the way I want to say it, but do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, I know what you mean because various people have said the same thing to me over the years. And, yeah. and it is absolutely true that, that the literary strength of the book turns out to be a moral weakness. And the literary strength of the book was that I did not muscle the reader around to make them think one thing or another about the story I was telling. That mostly I just told the story. And I just left it to the reader and the reader's sensibility to make sense of the story. And I assumed that the reader would make sense of the story in just the way I made sense of the story. I thought... The book would sort of cause young people in college who had a sense of purpose to say, oh, that's what that is. It's silly. It's of no real value. I'm going to go do what I was meant to do. And sometimes it did that, but mostly it didn't. On the other hand, if 
you don't really know what to do with yourself. And the idea of getting a job where you can eat cheeseburgers at nine in the morning and scream into the phone and make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year when you're 24 sounds good. You can read the book and say, oh, this sounds great. Yeah. I thought since then that the price you pay for writing a living story is that you lose some control about how the story is going to be interpreted or used or read. And that actually a good piece of writing leaves a hole for a reader to walk into it and exercise judgment about what this all means. And Liar's Poker did that kind of inadvertently, but it did do that. And I think that I think that's the only reason. It, if it was a more moralistic track, it would not have survived. Thank you so much to Jacob Goldstein. Other People's Money is just getting underway. We have four more episodes, and coming up in the next one, the author of Liar's Poker finds out what happened to the people who were in Liar's Poker. It was a good time for you to write that book and me to be forced to leave. <laughs> Did you feel like you were forced to leave? By the book? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know that. Really? It's okay. I don't blame you. Other People's Money is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review. You can buy our new Liars Poker audiobook, unabridged and read by me, the author, at pushkin.fm slash liarspoker, and also at Audible. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, now, as promised, here's a chapter from the new audiobook version of Liar's Poker. Hope you like it. Chapter 1. Liar's Poker. Sachin, New York, Dollar Paris, and 22. Okay, one moment. Cable Dresner, Frankfurt. Somebody asked me, what in fact do you do? And I realized that I spent most of my time on the phone, and in order to make people think I was professional, I had to figure out what it was I did. Wall Street, reads the sinister old gag, is a street with a river at one end and a graveyard at the other. This is striking, but incomplete. It omits the kindergarten in the middle. Frederick Schwed Jr., where are the customer's yachts? It was sometime early in 1986, the first year of the decline of my firm, Solomon Brothers. Our chairman, John Goodfriend, left his desk at the head of the trading floor and went for a walk. At any given moment on the trading floor, billions of dollars were being risked by bond traders. Goodfriend took the pulse of the place by simply wandering around it and asking questions of the traders. An eerie sixth sense guided him to wherever our crisis was unfolding. Goodfriend seemed able to smell money being lost. He was the last person a nerve-wracked trader wanted to see. Goodfriend liked to sneak up from behind and surprise you. This was fun for him, but not for you. Busy on two phones at once trying to stem disaster, you had no time to turn and look. You didn't need to. You felt him. The area around you began to convulse like an epileptic ward. People were pretending to be frantically busy and at the same time staring intently at a spot directly above your head. You felt a chill in your bones that I imagine belongs to the same class of intelligence as the nervous twitch of a small furry animal at the silent approach of a grizzly bear. 
An alarm shrieked in your head. Good friend, good friend, good friend. Often as not, our chairman just hovered quietly for a bit, then left. You might never have seen him. The only trace I found of him on two of these occasions was a turd-like ash on the floor beside my chair, left, I suppose, as a calling card. Goodfriend's cigar droppings were longer and better formed than those of the average Solomon boss. I always assumed that he smoked a more expensive blend than the rest, purchased with a few of the $40 million that he'd cleared on the sale of Solomon Brothers in 1981, or a few of the $3.1 million that he paid himself in 1986, more than any other Wall Street CEO. This day in 1986, however, Goodfriend did something strange. Instead of terrifying us all, he walked a straight line to the trading desk of John Merriweather, a member of the board of Solomon Inc., and also one of Solomon's finest bond traders. He whispered a few words. The traders in the vicinity eavesdropped. What Goodfriend said has become a legend at Solomon Brothers and a visceral part of its corporate identity. He said, one hand, one million dollars, no tears. One hand, one million dollars, no tears. Merriweather grabbed the meaning instantly. The king of Wall Street, as Business Week had called Goodfriend, wanted to play a single hand of a game called Liar's Poker for a million dollars. He played the game most afternoons with Merriweather and the six young bond arbitrage traders who worked for Merriweather, and he was usually skinned alive. Some traders said Goodfriend was heavily outmatched. Others who couldn't imagine John Goodfriend as anything but omnipotent, and there were many, said that losing suited his purpose, though exactly what that might be was a mystery. The peculiar feature of Goodfriend's challenge this time was the size of the stake. Normally, his bets didn't exceed a few hundred dollars. A million was unheard of. The final two words of his challenge, no tears, meant that the loser was expected to suffer a great deal of pain, but wasn't entitled to whine, bitch, or moan about it. He'd just have to hunker down and keep his poverty to himself. But why, you might ask, if you were anyone other than the king of Wall Street, why do it in the first place? Why, in particular, challenge Merriweather instead of some lesser managing director? It seemed like an act of sheer lunacy. Merriweather was the king of the game, the liar's poker champion of the Solomon Brothers trading floor. On the other hand, one thing you learn on a trading floor is that winners like Goodfriend always have some reason for what they do. It might not be the best of reasons, but at least they have a concept in their mind. I wasn't privy to John Goodfriend's innermost thoughts, but I do know that all the boys on the trading floor gambled, and that he wanted badly to be one of the boys. What I think Goodfriend had in mind in this instance was a desire to show his courage like the boy who leaps from the high dive. Who better than Merriweather for the purpose? Besides, Merriweather was probably the only trader with both the cash and the nerve to play. The whole absurd situation needs putting into context. John Merriweather had, in the course of his career, made hundreds of millions of dollars for Solomon Brothers. He had an ability, rare among people and treasured by traders, to hide his state of mind. Most traders divulge whether they are making or losing money by the way they speak or move. They're either overly easy or overly tense. With Merriweather, you could never, ever tell. He wore the same blank, half-tense expression when he won as he did when he lost. He had, I think, a profound ability to control the two emotions that commonly destroy traders, fear and greed, 
and it made him as noble as a man who pursues his self-interest can be. He was thought by many within Solomon to be the best bond trader on Wall Street. Around Solomon, no tone but awe was used when he was discussed. People would say, he's the best businessman in the place, or the best risk-taker I have ever seen, or a very dangerous liar's poker player. Merriweather cast a spell over the young traders who worked for him. His boys ranged in age from 25 to 32. He was about 40. Most of them had PhDs in math, economics, and or physics. Once they got onto Merriweather's trading desk, however, they forgot they were supposed to be detached intellectuals. They became disciples. They became obsessed by the game of liar's poker. They regarded it as their game, and they took it to a new level of seriousness. John Goodfriend was always the outsider in their game. That Business Week put his picture on the cover and called him the King of Wall Street held little significance for them. I mean, that was, in a way, the whole point. Goodfriend was the King of Wall Street, but Merriweather was the king of the game. When Goodfriend had been crowned by the gentlemen of the press, you could almost hear traders thinking, foolish names and foolish faces often appear in public places. Fair enough. Goodfriend had once been a trader, but that was as relevant as an old woman's claim that she was once quite a dish. At times, Goodfriend himself seemed to agree. He loved to trade. Compared with managing, trading was admirably direct. You made your bets, and either you won or you lost. When you won, people, all the way up to the top of the firm, admired you, envied you, and feared you, and with reason. You controlled the loot. When you managed a firm, well, sure, you received your quota of envy, fear, and admiration, but for all the wrong reasons. You did not make the money for Solomon. You did not take the risk. You were hostage to your producers. They took the risk. They proved their superiority every day by handling risk better than the rest of the risk-taking world. The money came from risk-takers, such as Merriweather, and whether it came or not was really beyond Goodfriend's control. That's why many people thought that the single rash act of challenging the arbitrage boss to one hand for a million dollars was Goodfriend's way of showing that he was a player too. And if you wanted to show off, liar's poker was the only way to go. The game had a powerful meaning for traders. People like John Merriweather believed that liar's poker had a lot in common with bond trading. It tested a trader's character. It honed a trader's instincts. A good player made a good trader and vice versa. We all understood it. The game. In liar's poker, a group of people, as few as two, as many as 10, form a circle. Each player holds a dollar bill close to his chest. The game is similar in spirit to the card game known as I Doubt It. Each player attempts to fool the others about the serial numbers printed on the face of his dollar bill. One trader begins by making a bid. He says, for example, three sixes. He means that all told, the serial numbers of the dollar bills held by every player, including himself, contain at least three sixes. Once the first bid has been made, the game moves clockwise in the circle. Let's say the bid is three sixes. The player to the left of the bidder can do one of two things. He can bid higher. There are two sorts of higher bids, the same quantity of a higher number, 
three sevens, eights, or nines, and more of any number, four fives, for instance. Or he can challenge, which is like saying, I doubt it. The bidding escalates until all the other players agree to challenge a single player's bid. Then, and only then, do the players reveal their serial numbers and determine who is bluffing whom. In the midst of all this, the mind of a good player spins with probabilities. What is the statistical likelihood of there being three sixes within a batch of, say, 40 randomly generated serial numbers? For a great player, however, the math is the easy part of the game. The hard part is reading the faces of the other players. The complexity arises when all players know how to bluff and double bluff. The game has some of the feel of trading, just as jousting has some of the feel of war. The questions a liar's poker player asks himself are, up to a point, the same questions a bond trader asked himself. Is this a smart risk? Do I feel lucky? How cunning is my opponent? Does he have any idea what he's doing? And if not, how do I exploit his ignorance? If he bids high, is he bluffing? Or does he actually hold a strong hand? Is he trying to induce me to make a foolish bid? Or does he actually have four of a kind himself? Each player seeks weakness, predictability, and pattern in the others, and seeks to avoid it in himself. The bond traders of Goldman Sachs, First Boston, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, and other Wall Street firms all play some version of liar's poker. But the place where the stakes run highest, thanks to John Merriweather, is the New York bond trading floor of Solomon Brothers. The code of the liar's poker player was something like the code of the gunslinger. It required a trader to accept all challenges. Because of the code, which was his code, John Merriweather felt obliged to play. But he knew it was stupid. For him, there was no upside. If he won, he upset good friend. No good came of this. But if he lost, he was out of pocket a million bucks. This was worse than upsetting the boss. Although Merriweather was by far the better player of the game, in a single hand, anything could happen. Luck could very well determine the outcome. Merriweather spent his entire day avoiding dumb bets, and he wasn't about to accept this one. No, John, he said. If we're going to play for those kind of numbers, I'd rather play for real money. Ten million dollars. No tears. Ten million dollars. It was a moment for all players to savor. Merriweather was playing liar's poker before the game even started. He was bluffing. Goodfriend considered the counterproposal. It would have been just like him to accept. Merely to entertain the thought was a luxury that must have pleased him well. It was good to be rich. On the other hand, $10 million was, and is, a lot of money. If Goodfriend lost, he'd have only $30 million or so left. His wife, Susan, was busy spending the better part of $15 million redecorating their Manhattan apartment. Merriweather knew this. And as Goodfriend was the boss, he clearly wasn't bound by the Merriweather Code. Who knows? Maybe he didn't even know the Merriweather Code. Maybe the whole point of his challenge was to judge Merriweather's response. Even Goodfriend had to marvel at the king in action. So Goodfriend declined. In fact, he smiled his own brand of forced smile and said, You're crazy. No, thought Merriweather. Just very, very good. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. 
NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.